Welcome to the Ready Yeti Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. Hey guys, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Ready Yeti membership. We've grown to have thousands of products from some amazing up-and-coming brands. Anything from skis and snowboards, jackets, hiking boots, even supplements and snack bars. It's an incredible way to save a ton on gear with discounts of up to 50% off. Join the Ready Yeti membership and do your part to help support some of these incredible small businesses that aren't just making incredible gear, but are also putting a lot of effort into social action and doing their part to create an environmentally conscious business. Join today at www.readyyeti.com members and start supporting these amazing startups and saving a ton on gear. This week's podcast is sponsored by Hiker Hunger Outfitters. Hiker Hunger Outfitters is a company founded by hikers who take pride in creating outdoor gear made for movement. With over 80,000 happy customers, their products are designed with you in mind and they truly care about your experience with their company. Whether you're a hiker, camper, walker, explorer, or weekend adventurer, their products are made for all types of people that care about getting fresh air and staying active. Their most popular products are the two models of trekking poles, carbon fiber for those looking for a lightweight option and aluminum for tougher terrain. Check out either of these models if you've been in the market for walking sticks. Just read the reviews to get an idea of the benefit they provide and how they've impacted the customers in a positive way. Hiker Hunger Outfitters is all about community and offering high quality products that are accessible and useful to anyone looking to continue exploring, no matter what age or how active you are. Visit HikerHungerOutfitters.com to see all of their products or call 877-700-7227 to speak with Cindy, their go-to customer service rock star. You could even text Emily, who happens to be one of the co-founders, at 413-627-1004. She's one of the friendliest people you'll talk to and she loves meeting new people. As an added bonus, Hiker Hunger Outfitters is offering a discount for first-time buyers. At checkout, just type in the code NEWGEAR15 and you'll get 15% off your purchase. What is going on, Ready Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, host. On today's episode, I am sitting down with the founder of Ferrum Forge Knives, uh, Elliot uh, Williamson. Elliot, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Glad to be here. All right, so for the listener that may not be familiar uh, with Ferrum Forge Knives, how would you best describe your brand to them? Uh, we are a relatively young brand. We've only been in the market for about 10 years. Um, we started out from really, really humble beginnings in my garage and we've kind of morphed ourselves over those 10 years into a little company that sort of best fits kind of where, where the overall market for knives is. So we make a lot of folding knives. That's kind of our milieu. Uh, and then the knife that we're going to be talking about today is actually the only production fixed blade that we have ever done. Now, I personally have made lots of fixed blades in my career, but uh, we've never never really came up with one that was going to be one that we wanted to have out to the mass market. That's really interesting. Okay, so let's talk about sort of uh, your 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 upbringing and sort of your your start in the um, in the industry. Did you always when did you start crafting and, and making knives? So that, that really started all the way back in 2009. Um, I finally was living in a house and it had a garage. And uh, I just graduated from UCSC. 
and uh, there were no jobs. So I had some free time and uh, I was I was messing around and I, I kind of always wanted to try and make knives. Um, I have had a knife since I was like four years old. My grandpa was, um, well, he had a lot of faith in me, apparently, gave the little four-year-old a knife. But from that point on, I always had a knife. And so, like, <laughs> I was just the kid with the knife. Oh, you got to open that? Go ask Elliot. He's probably got a knife. And I usually did. Um, I don't even know if you can do that in today's world. <laughs> yeah, you might get in a little more trouble these days. <laughs> I mean, I, I have two kids. And uh, and I they, they both got the, their first knives when they were four. Uh, not like little Swiss Army knives. Nothing super serious. Um, but like it has already happened where one of them forgot to take it out of their backpack. Like we were out hiking and they forgot to take it out of their backpack and then went to school. And like one of my kids actually got in trouble for it. I was like, Ooh, <laughs> oops. Sorry. <laughs> Dad's a knife maker. So <laughs> comes with the trade. That's interesting. So, okay. So let's talk about, um, the start you in 2009, you start messing around with making knives um, were you always very um, crafty, good working with your hands um, growing up? Or was this just something yeah. you just dove into and figured out? Um, we, I, I come from a, a pretty long line of, uh, of pretty technically um, competent people. Like uh, there's just, there's just engineers and, uh, and like mechanics and that kind of stuff in my family. So like I was out working on lawnmower engines with my my other grandpa when I was a little kid. And so like I've always just uh, taken things apart and tried to put them back, back together. Um, anytime any like piece of electronics ever broke around the house, it's like, oh, give it to Elliot. He wants to take it apart. I'm like, yes, I want to take it all apart. Um, me and Legos were like best friends. I still like Legos to this day. You and me both. <laughs> Even as a 37-year-old 30, man, I still love them. When my, I get my kids Legos, I'm like, all right, let's build these Legos, guys. And then I end up building <laughs> yeah, you built it all. Yeah, sorry, my bad, my bad. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but yeah, I've always been, I've always been pretty, pretty uh, handy would be the word. I've also had a lot of uh, jobs where I worked in construction fields. Um, so it was. Well, I'll tell you this story too. The actual garage that I started making real knives in is the garage of my grandparents, where I used to make wooden knives when I was a little kid. So it, I had this this moment one day where I was just doing stuff in the garage. I went, hey, you know what? I wonder if I could if I could do like what I used to do when I was a little kid, but do it better and actually use real metal. Oh, goodness. And then I got into watching some like blacksmithing videos and things like that. And that's how we actually get the forge part of Ferrum Forge is because I actually started forging stuff in my garage. I built a little, um, uh, what is that thing called? Oh, wow. I built a forge. Yeah, that's what I did. And um, looked it all up online, right? That I'm one of those people that loves to watch stuff on YouTube. And so I actually learned how to make it on YouTube and then built it. And uh, and then starting going through lots and lots of charcoal and making lots and lots of noise. My neighbors really thought it was cool. <laughs> I'm sure they were thrilled. What did you study in school? I actually have a degree in English, of all things. That's an interesting sort of uh, pivot. Not not like engineering or anything of that sort. What made you decide English? Um, it was actually English teachers in high school. 
So in high school, I was um, I was asked to be in the advanced science program. That I got a pretty scientific mind. Uh, but I saw guys that were I played sports with lots of these people. So um, with like guys that were seniors and they were having to do AP physics and AP calculus, and I went, "Ooh, no, thank you. That looks terrible. I don't want that. I'd like to have fun my senior year." Uh, so I chose to not go down that path. And then I had these two English teachers, and they were the co-heads of the English department, and they they decided that they liked me, and uh, and so I had the same two English teachers like flip-flopping every other year. It was it was crazy. I couldn't get away from them, and uh, they were always like, "You know, you're a great writer. You should be a writer. You should be a writer." And so when it came time to choose a major at college, it was like, "All right, I guess I'll choose English because I I do love to read and I do love to write." Um, and then somehow I ended up in a very technological and science heavy field. I don't know how that, how that happened. No, I know exactly how that happened. It, it, it actually was part and parcel of like, uh, like I have this weird duality where like my, my personal interests and pursuits not related to knives. They're, they're all real literary. I love, I love reading, I love books. Uh, but it was that love for literature that actually took me back into like the it took me into the metallurgy field a little bit. Um, I was I was in my senior year at UCSD and uh, I took a class that I was expecting was just going to be like a grade bumping class. Like, easy A. It was a professor that I'd taken uh, Latin with. Uh, it was on the Iliad and the Odyssey, two books that I've read many times. And I thought it was just going to be an easy walk in the park, slam dunk. Like we were really excited about it. Uh, it was the classroom was right next to the uh, pub that was on campus. And uh, I was a non-traditional student. So I was a little bit older in college than those people. Sure. And like, so I always used to just go have beers with my professors afterward. Cause that's where you get the real good stuff. I dropped the real nice knowledge on you there. Yeah. Uh, it's in, in, I was already starting to mess around with, with metal work. Uh, I, I was working for a company and we used to do a lot of welding and a lot of, uh, a lot of heavy, heavy metal work. Uh, it was for a, um, uh, ATM installation company. We did like bank construction. So we, we worked with a lot of steel and like, we used to talk about like how cool it would be if we could like make our own swords and stuff. Well, this was also in the age of the internet. And so as I was looking these things up and researching this, like I started to get the, I would call it the foundations for like knowledge that you need in order to make make knives. And I was really fascinated by it. And then takes me back to this class and I'm, I'm reading this book that's supposed to be from the Bronze Age. And there's a there's a simile in the Odyssey. that's uh, a direct reference to the heat treatment of steel. And I went, hey, wait a minute. That's really weird. They're talking about heat treating steel. This was supposed to be written in the Bronze Age. They didn't know about that stuff in the Bronze Age. What's going on here? So it turns out it's actually like a little controversy in uh, with probably like like ten people in the entire world who care that much about the Odyssey. Sure, sure. Uh, Homeric scholars, you know, of which there's not that many. And uh, so I got really interested in it, and that's what I chose to actually wrote a research paper about. And that research paper led me to like the dustiest, oldest parts of the library at UCSD. Um, I ended up talking with people in the archaeometallurgy department. Uh, I was invited to be in the archaeometallurgy master's program, and I was like, I actually, I don't, I don't have any science classes, guys. I don't, I don't think I can actually just do that. They're like, ah, whatever, man. So it was, um, it was like this weird intersection of my work life and my academic life, uh, kind of spawned out 
a possible direction for my future back in 2009. That's fascinating. And, and then mix that with the financial crisis and it's, this is where you are. <laughs> right. And it, it didn't surprise anybody in my family, right? They were all like, no, no, that makes total sense. Yeah. You'd, you'd make knives, but yeah, that seems about right. Um, so I just kind of went with it and, and here we are today and it, it blows my mind. And I, I like to remind Christopher, Christopher is my brother and business partner at Fair and Forge. And I like to remind him, like when we go through hard times and stuff, I go, remember, remember how we started this crazy stuff? Remember where we used to be to where we are now? Like, it's insane. The trajectory we've had. So we try and keep it in perspective when things go off the rails as they do sometimes. For sure. So let's talk about sort of that that growth um, after you launched. You start the business 2009-2010 time frame. What was it like in the beginning? How were you finding customers um, in the beginning? (laughs) Oh, man, the early days were they were completely insane. Um, So. I was, uh, in 2009, I was the stay-at-home dad, and I was stay-at-home dad all the way until 2012. So I got, I got three full years of being a stay-at-home dad, which was really cool. Um, I, I had a blast. Um, and so every, I, would, I had specific days where I would actually take my kids to like the San Diego Zoo, which is this beautiful zoo. And I, and I found a route that you can just walk around that, that takes about three hours. And, and if we got there at the right time, it was still nice and cool out. We'd do like half of it, we'd eat lunch, and then we do the rest of the half of the zoo. And by that point in time, they would be pooped. And so that we, we would come home and they would pass out for like three hours. So I would I'd sneak away into the garage and have like three hours to work on knives. And uh, it was it was crazy. By that point in time, I had already kind of stopped forging because it was very loud and very energy consuming and, uh, and very time consuming. Like it's a very difficult way to make a knife. And so I'd started like building my own grinders to try and do stock removal type processes. And I said, well, okay, this is a much more sensible way to make knives, especially if you're going to try and make money making knives. And at that point in time, it seemed like it was something that I probably would want to try. It wasn't like a full-time gig. It was definitely part-time until 2012. But like I used to just like people would randomly find me. So I, I built a little website for myself. Like I actually coded my very first website. I was real happy and proud about that. Terrible website, like three pages, absolute garbage. Um, but for like people would just find me because I had a website and email me. And then I started basically making completely custom knives. Like whatever people wanted, that's what I would try and make. So like I still get some like old, old stuff from like 2010, 2011 in. And it's all fixed blades at that point. And I, I like I just I marvel at them like wow I'm I made this in a garage on a grinder that I built and like it's it's not that bad by my standards today. Sure. And I get some stuff and it's like wow I can't believe I actually put my name on this. Gee whiz, look at this thing. Oh, we've had adventures. I'm sure. But from it was in 2012 when things really really changed because I wanted to make folding knives so so badly. But you do need some equipment in order to make folding knives, at least do them relatively well. And so, like, I had been uh, gifted a little tiny hobby mill. And, uh, like, it had really low horsepower. I don't even know how I actually used it to machine titanium. 
based on how like unpowerful it was <laughs> compared to what we work with now. I was like, oh my God, how did I even do this back then? But somehow I did. And the, the couple of like the first folder that I ever made was, uh, well, I destroyed it at this point because it was terrible. But uh, it, like it, it started me on this folder bug and that's the only way I can describe it. Like, it's just, it becomes this little sickness inside of you and all of a sudden all you want everything to fold. And so I just kept pushing and pushing. And then finally I made a folding knife that I thought was good enough to actually sell. And so I sent it to Arizona Custom Knives. And from that point on, that that was how people really found me. And um, explain by, what that what that is, Arizona Custom Knives. For the they listener. are a knife dealer. And they they used to do, I think they still do. I, I haven't actually sold anything on Arizona in a long time. They they do like consignment type stuff. So you can send them anything and they will put it up for sale. And uh, I think that very first knife sold for $425. Wow. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm going to be a millionaire. This is incredible. <laughs> sure. Well, um, I'm definitely not a millionaire <laughs> still, <laughs> though I've been trying for 10 years. Um, so it like once, once that happened, like once the first folding knife I, I had got out or into the, onto the market a little bit, I started getting a lot more emails. And then by like halfway through 2012, I, I had two years worth of work and I went, okay, maybe I have to make this my full-time job. And it was at that point that I put my kids in daycare and started working, you know, roughly an eight hour day, making knives all day, every day. And most of that is just word of mouth from people that have either bought a knife or have seen your knife in some capacity. Yeah, that's, I mean, it was very grassroots. Like when people talk about grassroots marketing, uh, it was the grassiest of grassroots. Uh, It was, I could, I couldn't believe it. Like where did, how do these people keep finding me? Well, apparently I was being talked about on forums and stuff like that because I was one of the few people that would actually make you a completely custom knife and you at a reasonable price too. Mostly because I didn't know any better. Right. That's, that's really interesting. It's kind of funny how that side of happens. Okay. So how, how did things, you, you now start working eight hour days or full schedule making knives. What, what was sort of the next steps that progressed the brand? Uh, the next steps were actually increasing my capability to produce. And so in 2013, uh, there was a guy that I knew who was, uh, was one of my assistant coaches. I, I used to coach hockey at that point in time as well. And uh, he had a shop. It's the shop that we're currently in. And he was getting out of his business. He was in the ice carving business. And he's like, hey, I want to get out of that business. It's terrible. It's really volatile. Um, this whole knife thing that you're doing is pretty cool. Like, do you want to like kick that up a notch? And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea actually, because I'm having a really hard time keeping up with demand. And so I moved into a larger shop and we got much more machinery. So back in those days I had like a CNC here. So I was seeing doing all my own CNC work. Uh, got, got nice grinders, actual grinders that were you know built by someone other than myself. They worked really well. It was incredible how much easier it is to work when you have uh, proper tools. Sure, yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre how that works. Um, and then, you know, it, it just increased my ability to purchase stuff a little bit as well. 
So instead of making like one knife at a time and buying all the materials for that one knife at a time, now I could buy sheets of steel, sheets of titanium. So that increased, you know, our productivity and decreased the, some of the expense. So we were able to try and get, get stuff out to the market. And the first one that we did that, that knife was called the Predium. And uh, it's the first time I ever designed a knife in CAD, computer-aided design software. It's the first time I'd ever run a CNC. And it was the first time that I'd ever tried making 100 of the same object. So uh, we call that the trial by fire period of Ferrum Forge Knifeworks. Sure, yeah. Like, oh, you know, learn how to do it all and just do it all. <laughs> One swoop. Uh, needless to say, as you might suspect, that didn't quite go all the way to plan. And uh, I actually, every time uh, somebody sends one of those knives back in, I, I try and trade them for something else so that it's gone forever. They're they're one of my embarrassments as a uh, as a knife maker. <laughs> That's interesting. But there are some people that, that love them, and then they just will not give them up, no matter what I offer them. Um, and then from that point on, like. Then I started asking a lot of questions, and asking questions really became the the driving force of how we improved over over the years. Just asking the question of my goodness gracious, the way that we're doing things is very hard, right? And it has a a lower rate of success than I would want it to have. How do we improve that? So we we started like talking to machine shops that are local to us to see like what other companies can do. And we found a, a shop and it's actually one of the best machine shops in San Diego. And they're right down the street from our shop, which came in real handy. And uh, I had a meeting with their head machinist and I was showing them a knife that I had made by hand. And he was like, wow, you, you didn't use a CNC on this. I'm like, no, he goes, this is pretty insane. Like how precise you're able to get by hand. And I went, well, you know, we used to build things like that in this world. It's just now we know that CNC's are, are much more economical and so we, we use higher level machinery than we ever did. And they're a lot easier to obtain. And uh, he was just fascinated by what I was doing. And so they took on our one of our first products that we ever did with them. And it was just a little 25 piece run. And all of the parts came back, uh, the handle scales all came back and, and everything was so so much better than what I was able to achieve on my own CNC. And I went, wow, I must be the worst machinist in the entire world. Well, we came to find out that it wasn't me. It was actually the machine itself was doing very strange things. And we ended up having to return that, uh, that machine. And then never got another one because we started using this machine shop that was down the street from us. And that increased our ability to actually do more knives. So by 2014, we were making uh, a 25-piece run of knives like every couple of weeks and so it, it seemed like it was a good pathway and then I kept asking well how do you take it to the next level like how how do these other like slightly larger than me companies like people that have I don't know a whopping six people in their company as opposed to my two like how do they do it like somebody can't sit there and grind like all of those blades in a year how do they do it and then I found out and so it's actually a company up in Washington that does the majority of blade grinding for for U.S. companies, unless they have their own particular type of machine to do this. And it's a half a million dollar piece of machinery, so not a lot of companies have it. Oh, interesting. 
And so I started doing 200 piece runs because that was the minimum quantity for blade grinding. So it started, it started to happen where we would, uh, you know, have parts generated, send those parts out for different processes. And then they would come back here and we would do fit and finish and final assembly on everything. And as time progressed, like my ability to detail out uh, computer design rendering, right, increased our success rates that we were having in having our parts manufactured outside of our shop. And it, uh, it started to become a really viable pathway to do what we were doing. And in 2015, right, we were, we were going gangbusters. And for, for a little two-man shop, we, we put out about 1,300 knives which is a lot for two. That's impressive. <laughs> That's a lot of knives. <laughs> um, like at this point in time, looking back on it, like my brother and I, we, we don't, we don't actually remember much of 2015. <laughs> yeah, there are, just a blur. Yeah. There are like knives that come back and I'm like, I don't even remember making these. Do you remember making these? And Chris is like, I don't remember making these. He's like, but hey, 2015, man, it was crazy. We were working just insane hours, over 80 hours a week. Like it was nuts. And so after 2015, we were like, whew, that's, uh, that's a lot. We, uh, we might need to uh, pace ourselves a little bit here unless we burn ourselves out. Like we were, we were definitely experiencing a little bit of burnout. Um, so we, we, I'd already started kind of looking around at like, how can I outsource full production? And I knew some other knife designers that were already starting to work with some companies overseas, and they were having some success with it. And like the quality of manufacturing that they were getting was as good, if not slightly better than what I was getting. And it was about a third of the cost. And I went, oh, wow. That seems really fascinating. So I started to work on like how that pathway would look. And one of the companies, it was actually one of our, our, one of our better customers who's local stopped in and he had a knife from We Knife Co. And it was the Wii 601. I'll never forget it. And uh, he's left-handed, and he wanted me to put the pocket clip on the other side of the knife. And to do that, I had to drill and tap some holes in the titanium. So I, I had this knife apart, and I'm looking at you know how they're how they're machining, how they were doing some of their internal setups, and I was like, wow, like this this company is really on the ball. And I knew that they followed me on Instagram, so I just slid into their DMs. I was like, hey guys. Like, <laughs> I, I, you guys follow me and obviously you probably know a little bit about what I do. Um, and like, I'm looking at this 601 model from you guys and it's, it's really well done. I like, I like a lot of what you guys are doing here machine wise. Uh, do you guys do OEM? And they're like, we absolutely do OEM. In fact, OEM is actually the mainstay of our business. What is OEM? Right? We have for our the listeners, um, original equipment manufacturer. Okay. So full outsource. Uh, and, and cause we knife has their own brand and, uh, they're pretty highly, highly thought of in the, in the industry, especially for what you get for the price that you're paying. And it, it started this, uh, this like a second revolution for fair and force knife works where now we didn't have to actually plan like our time schedules and how we were going product generated did some limits that we used to have. And then the other, probably the most important thing was it enabled us to get to price points that we could never achieve making stuff here. I mean, at this moment in time, I'm able to sell a full titanium frame lock with 20 CV steel 
for, I mean, we had them on sale for $200. To make that same knife in the, in the States, it would cost more than $200 to make it, let alone what you could retail it at. Right, that's interesting. So it was a dramatic, dramatic shift in price point. But in 2016, we'd also faced like some, I call it like a perfect storm for manufacturing problems, um, where we had, you know, a, some crappy titanium that came our way. And, you know, it was from a, a supplier that I trusted. And so we were drop shipping titanium to our water jet facility. And uh, it just so all happened in one day. We, we like to be kind of social here at Fan Forge. So we, we used to have happy hours on Friday. And uh, like, so people that, that are in the area would come, local customers, right, some right. of the people that I work with locally, they would show up and we have a good time and talk about our, our woes uh, business-wise and then all the other stuff. I, call, I used to call it man therapy. It was man therapy. <laughs> Fair. Uh, yeah, yeah. So like we, in one moment in time, we had the, the head machinist of the machine shop that we use and the guy who owns a water jet place both were here and he, the water jet guy came to drop off these parts that they cut for us. And they were in this titanium that had this terrible surface finish. And so like we get out the micrometers and calibers and we're measuring stuff and the thickness is all over the place. And I'm like, Oh geez. So I'm like, I told our machinists, I'm like, all right, do your absolute best with these things. And it was, um, that was about almost a thousand knives worth of parts came out of that one sheet. Oh boy. And so it was a lot. It was basically a whole year's worth of, of knife making. Um, and they were absolute garbage. And at that point in time, like Chris and I were pretty, feeling pretty good about ourselves. So we we're like, Oh, well we can take care of it when I'm like, you know, just do the machining on them, send it back. We'll worry about the surface finish. Like we always do. And uh, we'll be able to handle it. No big deal. Well, we were wrong. We were very, very wrong. What I should have done in hindsight, which is always 2020, um, I should have thrown those parts away and started again. Like the overall cost of that would have been way, way less than what it ended up costing us in the long run, which was drawing out the the times for, for part generation for us, getting those things surfaced down, and then having to remachine some components because we changed dimensions so, so much. And uh, that just added so much time for every knife run that came out of that sheet of titanium that we had to drop runs off at the end of the year. And so that, that ended up costing me about $200,000. Ooh, that's a scary bill to have definitely in, as your business is growing. I'm sure that probably oh, yeah. set you guys oh, back yeah. a bit in terms of what you were able yes. to do going forward. It did indeed. And we definitely chewed up sort of our cash reserves trying to spend our way out of the cycle. And it, it just... It got real bad. So in parallel with that, right, I was, I was getting a little disgruntled with just the kind of excuses that I was getting from a lot of my U.S. manufacturing partners. And I'm like, gosh, there's just so much excuses going on around here. So I was already starting to look into OEM pretty hard at that point. And then I had just started selling some of our overstock, which we usually don't have very much of, to a company called MassDrop.com. They're now called drop.com. And I had, I had an, a model planned to be our first OEM model, but I really had no way to market that. I had no idea like how we were going to make that, that pivot because we'd always been made in America, like made by Chris and I, like for our entirety of our career. And like, I was really nervous about it because I, I, I didn't want to, to seem like I was abandoning like all the people that had been purchasing my stuff for years. So, 
Mashrock came around and said, "Hey, what if what if we did this as a collaboration? Like you already have one of the one of the better manufacturers on the planet as your manufacturer for this, but you don't know how to market this or sell this. How about we turn this into a a sort of three way partnership, and then we'll we'll handle all the production stuff. Uh, we'll do all the sales, and you'll get a royalty. And what do you think about that? Because they wanted to have their own knife brand." And I went, all right, that sounds really fun. Let's try that out, see how it works. So that was the Falcon model. And then we are like nine models deep in that partnership over the span of three years. It, uh, it, turned, it turned my head a lot on, on like what, what was actually possible when you can achieve low price points. So I started doing, I started having our own, call it the Pro, the pro Series. So we have the, the Fairforce Pro Series, and they're, they're outsourced. And they've been great for us. Uh, I don't know if we would still be in business during, during the corona shutdowns. Like We would still be functional as a business if we weren't outsourced manufacturing at this point. Because That's... we were able to put our stuff on sale and actually still sell stuff during the, the whole shutdown. Right, that's really interesting. So it, it sounds like, an, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but the drop.com or mass drop at the time sort of say, helped um, helped you get, helped sort of front the bill or the cost of that um, production sort of mishap that you had with the steel. And that allowed you to sort of keep your side of the business where you make stuff on your side, but then also have this sort of other piece of the, of the brand. Is that sort of correct? Pretty much, pretty much. Um, I like to say that you know, were it not for making that deal with Drop, uh, we we would have been in a very different situation. It, uh, I don't want to say saved our company, but it definitely enabled us to get back on our feet. And like uh, the the overall like amount of of, of uh, revenue that gets generated from our partnership with Drop isn't all that much, but it was just enough to like keep things going. So that we could get our feet back under us and then keep moving forward, which is where we are now, and it's uh, it's much much nicer. Definitely. So, what what does it look like now for the business currently in 2020? Well, at the beginning of 2020, it looked like things were going to be going great. I had, uh, for the first time in my career, I'd actually planned out an entire year ahead of time. Uh, so we had all the models and stuff that we were going to put out, and we already knew that we wanted to attack lower price points. Um, cause we'd seen, uh, probably the, there's a model that changed my mind about, uh, liner locks in general, but also having stuff at low price points, sub hundred dollar price points. And it was the, the gent, which is the best selling model on drop, um, at this point. And I think there's over 30,000 of them out in the world now. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. That's a number that would have been, uh, it would have taken me years and years to, to ever achieve that on my own. So I went, you know what, they're, they're, I've been so focused on the top end of the market for so long that I've completely forgotten and ignored that there's are millions and millions of other people in this world who also like knives. They just don't like spending $500 on a knife, which I understand completely. Chris and I like to say, like, if we didn't make the knives, we wouldn't be able to afford buying one of the knives. So, <laughs> right, right get it $500 is a lot of money for a pocket knife 
and that's not even the most expensive stuff we built. Uh, so we were looking from the top down and that probably was an unrealistic viewpoint. And so we, we learned some lessons from working with drop and seeing what lower price points can do. And so we went, okay, we can, we now have access to the ability to manufacture things that we can sell for under a hundred dollars. We should pursue it. And we have been pursuing it. Uh, the lackey actually fits that bill. It's a knife that I would never have produced here in the States that I would have never done on our own uh, because I couldn't make it in enough quantity to make it make sense. But I also knew that there was a, a there's a missing part of the of the small fixed blade market because I was actually looking for a small fixed blade. And I'm like, man, like all these things are either like they've got weird ergonomics to them or they've got like holes in their handles to put your fingers in, which I don't like. Like nobody is just making a really basic utility drop point. Like there's only really one other brand that's doing it. And I'm like, and I don't like the way that it's it, it's set up. I don't like the way it feels in my hand. So I said, well, Jesus, like I'm a knife designer or something. So I designed the, the lackey and then had a prototype. And then Chris and I, we carry all our prototypes and carry the prototype for a while. I'm like, man, this is actually a really great little knife. I'm like, we definitely got to do this. And so I was just waiting for it to fit into the production schedule. And we had a moment where we had a, a lull in, full, in folder production. And I was like, hey, you know what? Let's run that fixed blade. Might as well. I mean, I'd like to have a couple more around. So we, we ran it and then you know, put it out there to our dealers and distributors. And then they, they went away. Like they were sold out really, really quickly. And, uh, and then like it won like some, some award from an online knife magazine, which was pretty neat. Uh, I was like, wow, maybe I've, maybe I've struck something here with this little fixed blade. Maybe I wasn't the only one who was looking out at the, you know, small carryable fixed blade market and going, wow, there's just nothing out there that I really, really like. And so maybe we've hit, uh, had a decent chord with that knife. That's really interesting. They certainly are really. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. I was just saying that they're certainly really, really useful. I mean, I keep one in the glove compartment in my car. Like my kids each have one. Like when we're out doing our adventure stuff, they get their, they, they call it their adventure knife. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it, um, it's interesting. It's sort of um, taking your years or decade at this point, right? Plus experience <laughs> at making knives and you looking at a, at a sort of a, uh, a category and being like, mm, this doesn't seem like it's what I want. <laughs> and then just because of that combination, it just worked out, right? And now you have this like, well, incredibly also, successful line. It's also like if I if I wasn't having stuff made overseas, I would have never considered it. And so it it like having stuff manufactured for us, like if you'd asked me five years ago if I'd do that, I would have told you, no, no, I'm thinking about it, but I don't know. Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. And now it's like now that we've now that we've taken the plunge, like it, it really has just changed the entire way we think about what we do as a business, because now I don't have to be. Uh, as hawkish about how we're actually spending our every moment in the shop. And it allows for a lot more creativity on my end, since I am the guy that does all the design work. Like the creative process of knife design work is one that takes some time. So like when I go to, to just a completely new knife, right? I say, all right, today I'm going to sit down. I'm going to, I'm going to create a brand new folding knife. That process 
takes about 40 hours to design it. Yeah. Which often shocks people because it's, it's like, oh, well, you're working with a computer program. That's true. I am. But it also takes a, fo- a solid week to, to really flesh out a design completely and then also have it manufacturable, like all the files set for manufacturing. That's really interesting. And, it, it, and part of it's like the creative process, right? Where it's like you'll start and then maybe you'll scrap it halfway through because of for whatever reason, right? I'm sure that's happened many times. <laughs> In, Sometimes. In, in designing something, I don't do, a, I don't do a particularly great job remembering to save all the time, and so I've, I've sure yeah, been I've been forced to start again before. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, we yep. I totally see that. <laughs> okay, so tell me, where do you see um, Fair and Forge going in the future, the next year, five years, ten years down the road? Uh, well, pre-COVID, I had uh, a lot better idea of what we were going to attempt to do. Uh, in that uh, 135 and then 10. But uh, nowadays, I'm, whew, it's, it's a lot harder. So I'm, I'm going to try and continue along uh, with sort of the idea that I had for 2020. We already knew that it was going to be uh, kind of a weird year. Uh, election years are always weird years in terms of knife purchases. Uh, and it really depends like what, what candidates are talking about. So in 2016, we saw a big drop off in knife purchasing because people were buying guns. Because a lot of people thought if Hillary Clinton were to have won the presidency, that that gun sales were going to be a problem in the future. So a lot of people took their disposable income, stopped buying knives, started buying guns. That we heard that from so many customers, like our our usual suspects, like our our probably top 20% customers. They were like, "Oh no, I'm buying guns, guys. Sorry." Okay. Wow. So we expect that 2020 was going to be a little weird. Uh, and that's why we chose to have as much product as under a hundred bucks as we possibly could. And that sort of was the, the game plan for the year. So we're going to continue with that game plan for this year. Um, we'll see if I can actually get things to the U S I've already had some problems with it. <laughs> um, and then looking forward to like 2021, uh, I got, uh, I got some, some worries about what the overall economy is going to look like and how much disposable income people are going to have to be spending on pocket knives and uh, small fixed blades. Uh, I had wanted to be aggressively pursuing uh, kitchen cutlery in 2021 because uh, I, I am, I'm a bit of a foodie. I love to cook and uh, I have a small obsession with kitchen knives. I, I got a, I got a, maybe a couple too many. If there even is such a thing as spending, I, I don't think there is. I'd agree with you on that. <laughs> There's no such thing as too many. Definitely not. <laughs> so, like, I I want to be in that space, right? I I use kitchen knives all the time. I cook probably every day at this point, um, and I've made several for myself and and family and friends, and I've sold some kitchen knives that I've made over the years, and so I, I have some ideas of what I want to do design wise to them, and. Um, strongly considering it and i'm not sure how hard we're going to go into it in 2021 given sort of the economic uncertainty that i'm expecting to come out um but then hopefully like as we get to a three-year picture right we've seen some recovery uh there's more disposable income for people to spend on knives and if we can be uh do like a slow roll into the kitchen cutlery market um i'd love to to have those sectors kind of under our belt as a little company. Yeah, it's sort and of interesting. five years now. Yeah, keep going, keep going. Uh, well, hopefully by five years, right, we've seen 
enough recovery where we can get back into kind of a full growth mode. Because I'd, I'd love to start growing us at this point now that we sort of have how we produce the product that we want at the price point that we want. Not only have that kind of worked out, I'd like to keep taking those lessons um, and start seeing how we grow that. And I, I think we can. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting when you take into consideration something like COVID, which you never thought would be sort of on the horizon, right? Like six months ago, or I guess eight months ago at this point. <laughs> um, it's interesting being a business owner sort of trying to forecast yeah. for that, right? Which I'm sure, <laughs> and I know we, we talked about this a little bit where like sales have been pretty strong, I think for you recently. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think what think you said was somewhat unexpected based on everything yeah. that's been going on. Well, I, I figured that with, you know, a bunch of people being out of work that, you know, they weren't going to spend as much money on, on things like pocket knife, basically an accessory. And I was wrong, right? The uncertainty of the times definitely led people to, at least I think led people to uh, purchasing knives, especially if they were at the right price. Yeah, that was so, interesting. If we if we like try to project five years out, and uh, and I'm thinking about like what is what does the market look like in five years from now? Like I'm hoping that we see uh, a resurgence in people, you know, who look back at their time in COVID and where they had to kind of, at least I'm hoping a lot of people did. I see it a lot on the internet, and I know that I've done it with like my own kids and and people in my own sphere where we've, you know, we started being a little bit more self-reliant. And so part of self-reliance is, is having the right tools to do what you need to do and want to do. So I'm hoping that we see uh, a sort of a resurgence of, of self-reliance and where more and more people are going to be wanting to, you know, pass knives down to their kids and things like that. Yeah. At least that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> we can only hope. It's interesting. I'm definitely intrigued to see what happens going forward. And uh, Elliot, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, to come on the podcast and share your story and the story of uh, of your brand and, and sort of the, the long um, sort of line it's taken over time and all the ups and downs. And I think um, our listeners are definitely got a lot out of sort of hearing everything from, from the inception. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, uh, most people who own businesses will talk ad nauseum about their business because, if, you know, it, it really is your life. I, I like to try and not have my business own me, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm not that deluded. I'm aware that it definitely definitely owns me a little bit. I refer to it as my cruel mistress. <laughs> I mean, we've got to love it, right? To put all the time and energy into it, <laughs> and also get stressed out about it. <laughs> Absolutely true. And I, I I often tell people that like don't own own businesses, and like you can never understand quite what it's like. And the, the sort of uh, the feelings that you will experience when you own your own business, it is uh, entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. That is for sure. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Ready Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.